Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Israeli ambassador to Ireland hits out at the UN chief in a wide-ranging interview with us tonight. There are no ifs or buts or whataboutism in this case, and that's why we reject those comments. Meanwhile, in Gaza, hospitals are stopping all but emergency services as fuel runs out to keep generators going. Also coming up on the programme here tonight, a major row between government coalition partners over plans to reduce housing supports for Ukrainian refugees. Just don't know uh, whether we'd be in a position to provide accommodation and all those additional supports. The United Nations is warning that it only has hours left before it has to halt all aid operations in Gaza because of a fuel blockade. It says that fuel top-up supplies must be let through to keep essential equipment running, including hospital generators. Meanwhile, the head of the UN has claimed that his comments yesterday about the conflict were misrepresented after he faced calls for his resignation. By the misrepresentations by some, of my statement yesterday in the Security Council as if if I was justifying acts of terror by Hamas. This is false. It was the opposite. I also clearly stated, and I quote, but the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas. Well, earlier today, I sat down with the Israeli ambassador, Dania Ehrlich, at her embassy in Dublin to discuss the conflict, Israel's war of words with the United Nations and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. But I began by asking her about the mood in Israel since the deadly Hamas attack on October 7th. I think we are mourning. We are still in shock in a way. And it's not just our nation. We see the solidarity of the international community. The Jewish world, I think we all understood something on October 7th that we didn't understand before. And that's why it's mourning, realization, but also understanding our existential threat and the need to defend ourselves. Is that an an understanding that was not there before or what for your country changed? I think most of us, all of us want to live in peace. And most of us thought that we can live in peace with, uh, with our neighbours. We were hoping when we disengaged from Gaza in 2005 that we'll be welcomed by peace and by a thriving community next to us. And on that morning, we realised that Hamas, a terror organisation that lives on our doorstep, its only aim is to kill Israelis and Jewish people, not just in Israel, but all around the world. Do you worry about the trauma, not just in Israel, but in Gaza too? 
we worry about the trauma that Hamas in, is inflicting on all of us. So right now, this war that we were all forced into, yes, we worry about our children, we worry about the children and the population in Gaza. I can only hope that uh, if only Hamas would have given an inch of that thought to their people. I'm asking you that because the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said that the attacks by Hamas that left 1,400 people dead in Israel on October 7th were appalling, but it did not justify the collective punishment of civilians in the Gaza Strip. What do you say to that? There are no ifs or buts or whataboutism in this case, and that's why we reject those comments, and this, we feel that there are very unfortunate comments to make. There is no context to this situation right now. This is not part of the Israeli-Palestinian issue. This is not about Palestinian welfare. This is not about worrying for a possible solution. This was just an act of pure hate and the instructions that these terrorists came with and when they invaded Israel had a very mm -hmm. clear mission to mutilate, to murder, to behead people, to kidnap as many women, babies and children as possible. So this is not within any context. And if you try to say yes, but, or yes, if, then that's justifying what they did. We did hear from Antonio Guterres who said that, you know, the conflict did not take place in a vacuum, that there, there is context to this. And with that, that the collective punishment is a violation of international law. Is, is Israel prepared to continue to violate international law as the UN sees it? I'll separate this to three. First of all, we are not violating international law. Israel is commit, committed to the rules of war, and we are holding ourselves to it. Unfortunately, obviously, Hamas as a terrorist organization is not. Second, um, what we're talking about, what we're seeing here, it's separate from all of the discussions about the Palestinian and Israeli negotiations, conversation. It, we're just falling into the trap of Hamas. This is what they wanted. Mm -hmm. They wanted Israel to be blamed. They wanted all of us to discuss this. Instead, of clearly stating that they are accounted for everything that is happening in Gaza and in Israel. I just want to get back to the, the, the subject of international law. Collective punishment is a violation of international law. Displacing over one million people is a violation of international law as the UN would see it. And when we have and when we hear from the likes of UNICEF saying that more, more than 400 children are reportedly being killed every day, how can it not be seen as anything other than collective punishment? These children are not Hamas militants. No children need to die. And if Hamas didn't have started this, and if Hamas didn't have continued this, no children would have died, unfortunately. Israel is not breaking international law. When you examine international law, you need to examine case by case. You, there are some claims and myths here that this is a collective punishment. This is not collective punishment. Every military target that Israel is attacking in Gaza, it's a legitimate, by law, target. So when we're talking about collective punishment, I agree that Hamas is using that collective punishment on its population when they're not letting them evacuate. We evacuated Are you saying the chief of people. the UN is misinformed if you're calling it a myth? Well, yes, or I don't know if they have some unconscious bias that we've seen in the UN. The disproportionate discourse against Israel 
Yes, that is bias against Israel. The, the global head of peace and security has an unco unconscious bias um, uh, towards Israel. This is why we're so outraged by these statements, because they have no room. And we've seen international leaders come out and say opposite things. So I don't think that he represents countries in the UN when he stated that. And for two and a half weeks, we're now fighting in this unfortunate war for 18 days. And we've seen that solidarity and that unanimous call to stop Hamas, because this needs to stop. We are seeing attacks on schools. We are seeing attacks on health facilities, on UN shelters and the denial of humanitarian access there. So if people are sheltering together in large numbers in an area the size of Gaza, which we know is tiny for the population there, isn't it true to say that any Israeli bombardment is going to be all the more devastating and that while you may say you are targeting a group of militants, there are a lot of children, there are a lot of women and a lot of other members of the population being killed? All of Israel is a tiny piece of land to begin with. And what we are doing is evacuating our people from the south of Israel and from the north in order to make sure that they are not in an active combat zone. This is what we would have expected Hamas as the controllers of Gaza to let their people do. They do not let them do that. Can you say that there is a safe place in Gaza for people to go? We are asking them to move south because we are concentrating on the military targets in the city of Gaza. Why no unimpeded access for humanitarian aid? There are a few also misconceptions here. Under international law, Israel is not responsible for Gaza since we disengaged in 2005. What we do is supply part of that. So I, I think there is an image as if we're pushing, um, the, if we move uh, humanitarian aid or not. The water, for example, that we supply Gaza, it's only 10% of the water that they have and use. So but just we know, out of, but if we, we know talk for about the process and We know for the process of making that water safe and safe to use in hospitals and, and safe for people to drink, that it needs to go through a process which requires energy, which requires fuel, and fuel is being blocked from entering Gaza. Well, I, we know that Hamas has a lot of fuel that they are not sharing with their population. We also know that is there, Hamas... Is there evidence of that? Yes, there, there is. And like, where is the evidence? I can show you photos that we have footage, aerial footage of it. I'm happy to share it with you. It's, uh, we've shared it with the world. Unfortunately, again, we see that the world is very quick to believe a terrorist organization. But then a democratic country, an ally of Ireland, everybody's hesitant on believing what we are showing and telling. Okay, but when, when we hear, and we do hear from UN agencies, we hear from aid agencies, concerned NGOs, that the biggest problem now for hospitals is that we're going to see a shutdown of facilities, ICU wards being shut down, incubators being switched off, that this is the situation right now in Gaza. This is the, the threat. The situation is so, horrible. So, I so agree with, with that you. in mind, mm -hmm. is Israel willing to move on that and to allow fuel in? So I can't, I reject the premise of the, this question because you are describing the situation as is Israel is the sole responsible for it. Again, Hamas, the controller of Gaza, has plenty of supplies. From the last briefing that I was on last night, um, I think they have right now that we know of about 46,000 uh, litres of uh, fuel that that will give about so six how, days. How you, I, 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 
wondering how you expect this then uh, to play out. First of all, I think we need to say the truth for what it is. Hamas should be accounted for what they did. There is a certain accountability of it. We are playing when the, the international media, when different politicians are only talking about Israel's responsibility and denying the responsibility of Hamas or hiding from the truth, then I think we're just serving a terrorist organization. And what we ask people also here in Ireland to, to do is to understand the facts and not rely themselves on what a terrorist organization is saying. When we look at the numbers given by the health of, uh, department of Gaza, which is Hamas controlled, how can we believe those numbers? So are you saying those numbers that we've heard about 700 people killed, you know, in the space of 24 hours, that those numbers are inaccurate, that the death toll that we're hearing is near, nearing 6,000 is inaccurate? I'm saying that unfortunately we don't know the actual numbers. I'm saying that there are horrible numbers and this is a horrible situation. Again, I'm, it pains us to see what so, happens so you, in Gaza. you accept that the, the bombardment we're seeing is taking a heavy toll when it comes to civilian lives. We know that this is the intention of Hamas. Hamas embedded themselves so much in the communities. And again, I'm, I'll be happy to show images of where the launching sites are and how the proximity of it to schools, to hospitals, to UN organizations, we see it time and time again. Does it not make it all the more reason to push for a full ceasefire at this point? What happens in a ceasefire? Who protects us? This started unprovoked on October 7th. Well, if there's a ceasefire, I imagine then, you know, the, the, the missiles are not firing from Gaza and you are not bombarding Gaza from the air. That's this what happens in the case a of a terror ceasefire. terror organization that time and time again, and we've seen different violent cycles and operations. And I don't think that right now, after what we've seen on Saturday, October 7th, we can believe them. And we are... Um, hearing of plenty, a, an awful lot of anguish from families in Israel um, who are so worried about members of their family who are being held hostage. How important is it for Israel to secure their freedom? I think for us, it's one of our, it's one of the top priorities. We are all with the families, all of us. Uh, in Israel, as in Ireland, we're a small country. So uh, we don't have, we say that there are no degrees of separation. Everybody knows somebody. And for us, the goals of this unwanted war is to bring them back, to secure our borders, and to make sure that this terror organization on our doorstep is not a threat anymore. We had a senior peace negotiator saying on our program last night that you simply will not get civilian hostages out without a ceasefire to ensure safety of passage. From a practical point of view, uh, also, you know, humanitarian reasons, not just for the civilian population in Gaza, but Israel's own people being detained. Isn't a ceasefire a good idea? Well, you're saying detained, it's kidnapped, hostages, we don't know in which condition. But right now, we, we don't know what will happen. And we know that Hamas will abuse any situation. So we want to make sure that any uh, reality that we agree to is at the benefit of the citizens of Israel, all of the citizens, and the people who are held kidnapped in Gaza. At this point, um, as this has moved on from October 7th to where we are now, 
there have been calls for your expulsion. How do you feel about that? I think the whole idea of having diplomatic relations is having frank and open conversations. We do that with our best friends, and I expect to do this in Ireland. Uh, to my understanding, the voices calling for that are the extreme voices that also call for the um, freedom uh, from the river to the sea, which means uh, the well, it's elimination members, it's of members, Israel. It's, it's, it's members of um, opposition parties as well. Uh, the Labour Party leader saying here that your position should now be under question. I think that is an internal uh, Irish discussion, but as we see it, as uh, Only insofar as it, it, it includes your name in, in, in that. Of course, but I think I'm doing my job as Israel's ambassador to Ireland. It is my duty to represent my people. The 220 people who are held kidnapped in Gaza, the people in Israel who are fighting for their safety, I will continue doing so. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk with the Irish government and the Irish people. And this is the whole idea of having diplomatic relations. Okay. Ambassador Dania Ehrlich, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, I'm joined now by Fianna Fáil TD Barry Cowan, Labour TD Duncan Smith and Irish Independent Deputy Political Editor Hugh O'Connell. Um, just briefly to come to that, first, that, that last uh, question that I asked about um, the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador and calls around that from your Labour Party uh, leader, Ivana Batchik Duncan. On listening to that, Sonia Ehrlich's defence of her position, um, you know, with regards, you know, being in Ireland and doing the job that, that she's supposed to do, ha has Labour Party changed its position at all on, on, on asking her to consider and strongly consider her position? Well, look, again, just, just to be clear, uh, the context of uh, Ivana Batchikar, leader, answering that question was the Israeli ambassador criticising our president and his very, uh, you know, balanced uh, mainstream calls for a ceasefire and for peace in Ireland. The Israeli ambassador and Israel in general is lashing out at everyone that is calling for proportionality, for peace, for a ceasefire. Uh, I, I have my head in my hands watching that in interview there with some of her, uh, the Israeli ambassador's answers. When you asked where should uh, Gazans go uh, to be safe, she said South Gaza. If you look at the news reports coming out tonight, where are bombs raining down? They're raining down in South Gaza. When you ask about fuel, uh, the Israelis will say that they're, every time they give fuel into Gaza, Hamas take it. If you listen to the UN Relief Works Agency, uh, today, on the record, they say that never happens. When fuel comes in uh, to, to uh, U U UN Relief Works Agency, it stays with the UN Relief Works Agency. So there's just untruths coming from every uh, part of the Israeli state appar apparatus, including uh, the Israeli ambassador here at the moment. And it's very hard to have frank, open diplomatic relations with someone who is, who is spreading so much misinformation on what is happening in Gaza at the moment. Uh, Hugh, when we, on the broader issue, you know, of, of I suppose the war of words has erupted mm. as well between the UN uh, and, and Israel, uh, what we got again from the ambassador today was a staunch defence of Israeli actions and a dismissal of the UN uh, Secretary General's assertion that international laws were being violated, describing yeah. that as a myth. Uh, what does that tell us? And is there a, a broader and a wider concern about dismissing the UN and where this conflict goes from here? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my impression of that interview was this kind of absolutism uh, on the part of, of the Israeli government um, articulated by the ambassador. Um, and no conflict is ever solved by absolutism on both sides. Um, so that means that we're really far away from any sort of 
even ceasefire, you know, I mean, that whole concept seemed, I mean, you had to explain it to her at one point, and, and that to me was, was worrying in the sense that it's just not on Israelis, um, on Israel's radar at the moment. And because of what happened on October 7th, one of the worst attacks, if not the worst attack since, um, uh, a single loss of life of Israeli citizens since, since the Second World War, um, since the Holocaust. So, like, that has had a deep impact on the Israeli psyche, and that has led to the sorts of decisions that have been made now uh, in, in the last two weeks that have, have seen thousands of people in Gaza died. And even that was a point of dispute because she was claiming that they were coming from the Gazan Health Ministry, which is c controlled by Hamas, therefore, you know, suggesting we cannot believe these figures. But, I mean, anyone watching the news on a nightly basis or even a couple of times a week will see the numbers of people who are falling victim to uh, Israeli bombs raining down And the on point Gaza. being made as well that it's actually doctors on the ground and doctors Absolutely. in the hospital and, uh, who are counting the dead. And it, and that's a very, that, that's a very important point to make, is that these are doctors in these facilities. Made. These are not Hamas politicians. These are not Hamas militants making these points. These are people who are trying to give life-saving treatment to these people on the ground and are mm -hmm. seeing body after body coming through coming through the hospital. And it's also worth making the point that thousands of children have, have, have died in recent weeks in Gaza because of this, according to the, the figures that have been released. And you know, the ambassador talks about the violation of international law, or that there's been no violations of international law by Israel by Israel. I mean, anyone looking at the pictures of children, dead children, couldn't couldn't possibly think that. Um Barry, I guess all of this leads to and and you know diplomacy here. And for the EU's part, they're still wrangling with the wording of what a temporary stoppage looks like. Is it a pause? It's certainly not a ceasefire. I don't think they'll get that over the line. That's what the Irish government is calling for. Um, is there influence there? Is there? Would there be a greater push for a full ceasefire now, seeing this unraveling situation in Gaza? You would like to think so, and certainly hope so. You know, at times as as two colleagues have said here, during that interview, it would appear almost hopeless. But you can't allow hopelessness to take hold. How would you assess that interview, Barry? It was disappointing, to say the least. Um, it was absolutism at its heart. Um, but like I said, you know, nobody knows better than us in this country that, you know, you have to retain hope. The power of good can persevere and can win out. And we have to use whatever influence we have to ensure that that's the case. And the manner in which she rejects the, the, the findings by the UN in relation to breaches of international law is something that the UN will have to respond to in the form of finding a mechanism or a process that allows independent adjudication and assessment to prove that fact. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're back to the first point. You know, the, 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 there's no equivocation, justification, or whataboutery about what was done initially by Hamas um, and there was a right, of course, for Israel to repel that, to defend itself. But it had no right thereafter uh, to mm. compel those people to move, to, to take water from them, to take electricity from them, and then to try and say, well, it's only 10%. There's either a violation of international law or, or there's not. And if they have rejected that initially, well, then it's up to the UN to prove that fact. But in the meantime, of course, diplomacy has to work. Of course... You know, you might feel like you'd like to expel this one and that one, but what does that get you? Yeah. Or where does that get well, you? It cuts off channels of communication. And communication must remain open. The first and foremost is it's, it's a ceasefire. It's get humanitarian aid in. From our perspective, get our Irish citizens out. Uh, you know, to de-escalate, there's the regional aspect that's there too that would make this even a whole lot worse. But everything we, we are saying tonight, and the way you've been reacting to this, we are actually diplomatically out of step 
with the rest of the EU and with the US on this. Yeah, so, but, but so, I mean, so, so, like in in this situation, uh, you know, how do, how do you get to that? How do you get to that place? How do you get there when you see the backlash to the UN Secretary General's comments? Yeah, we, we may be out of step with the EU and the US, but it doesn't mean we're wrong, and we're not wrong on this. We're on the right side. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here. We're on the side of, of, uh, of, of, of the oppressed and people that are being slaughtered, innocents that are being slaughtered. And I think we have a proud history in this country and a proud record in this country of punching above our weight diplomatically, both within the EU and particularly within the United Nations. And again, the United Nations, if you look at our history on non-proliferation, disarmament and our, our successes there, Israel stands outside an awful lot of those treaties. They don't recognise them. They're not a part of them. It's Israel that are the outlier here. Um, and, you know, we, we need to do everything we can to stand by our principles as, as a neutral country, as a country that has a proud record of peacekeeping and disarmament, uh, and just make that case. And we can't just fall into line with the European norm on, on, I on note this. Th- I note that Ivana Bacic said, you know, we are doing as much as we can. The Irish government is doing as much as it can in that regard and calling for a full ceasefire. Mm. Um, there was a conversation um, here here last night about, you know, I suppose the power, the, um, you know, soft power and the influence that we have with the US. And could Ireland be more involved in, in brokering a peace or in pushing for a diplomatic solution here? Well, I mean, I think in terms of influencing the US in relation to this, that would be quite difficult when you consider um, the, uh, the, the the allies that Israel and the US are and the billions of dollars of aid of, of military support, excuse me, I should say, that, that the US provides to um to Israel and indeed has, is ramping that up now in the face of this um of the October seventh attack and, and Israel's response to that. Um, so Ireland I think has a very limited role in respect of influencing the US in relation to that. But I mean, one thing I was really struck by in, in everything that everyone has said over the last few weeks is Joe Biden said, you know, pointing out to uh, publicly, I think, and in conversations with Benjamin Netanyahu, that the, the folly of, of the United States approach after 9-11. I mean, Israel is describing this as their 9-11. Um, and the, as I said earlier, the sort of absolutism and, and you know, what America got into was two uh, intractable wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which cost thousands of lives of, of their soldiers and many more thousands of lives of Afga- Afghanistan citizens and Iraqi citizens as well. Two terrible wars that they took decades literally to, to extract themselves from. Uh, and that was all as a consequence of 9-11, a terrible atrocity committed on the United States. But, you know, it's important that 
that there isn't sort of the reaction that it just creates more and more conflict for years and decades yeah. to come. Because it's, that's exactly what happened after 9-11. And the other thing I'd point out as well is that the Israeli ambassador said that there's no context to the situation right now. Well, we can't ignore the context of the situation mm. right now, what's been going on in Gaza for, for, uh, for years now, uh, and, and the situation in there. I mean, the situation that necessitated uh, 100 UNRWA trucks going in every day, and that now being cut down to six or seven a yeah. day. And briefly, Barry, just news that's emerging tonight that the Irish government is asking every, you know, Irish citizens in Lebanon to leave the country right now, a sign, I suppose, of the escalating precarious situation in the region. It is because of the, the potential for this to further escalate in Lebanon, for example, and um, all the more reason, as has been alluded to, for the active players in our government uh, to continually uh, work with and seek to influence their counterparts across Europe with the view towards the, the, the council meeting taking place uh, later in the week and ins insist on a unified approach which has only benefited this country in the past in relation to unification uh, matters by which progress can be made and the bloc then can work as one in its effort to All influence right. the situation regionally. Okay, coming up next, a political row between the coalition partners over supports for Ukrainian refugees we discuss. Stay with us. The Taoiseach has admitted that Ireland has the compassion, but not the capacity to continue housing refugees from Ukraine if current rates continue. Leo Varadkar was speaking in the Dáil after a heated row at yesterday's cabinet meeting over proposals to scale back the supports offered to new arrivals from that country. Um, can you bring us up to date on where we are with this and the particular proposals that cause such <clears throat> angst at the cabinet table? Yeah, well, this is something that's been kind of thrashed around between ministers uh, before the summer recess and, and subsequently as well. But there's been no agreement and it's been before the, the three coalition leaders usually meet on a Monday, their last two meetings. Um, the proposal is basically around housing provision and state-provided housing or accommodation, I think would be more accurate, be it hotels or other facilities, that effectively the state would provide this for up to 90 days. But after that, um, if... Uh, Ukrainian refugees coming to the country uh, haven't secured private uh, rental accommodation, and mm. um, they'd kind of be out on their own, and they'd have to, f to ha have to find it. Um, so that's obviously a very controversial proposal in the context of of a state support system that's been in place since the the war, um, since Russia invaded Ukraine in February twenty two. Um, that is quite different. It's quite a departure from that. Um, and what happened at Cabinet uh, on Tuesday was, was basically a lot of pushback on this uh, proposal as outlined by Roderick Gorman. It wasn't a, a formal memo, but it was something that his, uh, a policy that he's proposing at some stage to bring to cab Cabinet more formally and seek approval for. And Micheál Martin it, articulating the concerns yeah. of, of Fianna Fáil primarily, I think, but Fine Gael have also, I, th I think, you know, raised issues about this in, in recent weeks privately, um, saying that uh, this, this proposal needs to be more rounded in the sense that, like, we need to have a, a proper answer for where these people go after 90 days if there's no private rental accommodation option for them or if there's, there's no uh, accommodation solution for them because it creates the appalling vista in the situation of these people being on the streets, basically. Well, we're also joined by Emma Lane Spollin from the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. And the question, I suppose, Emma, on this, do you think this policy is designed as a deterrent? That if you're saying to people you're going to limit state accommodation for refugees to 90 days, you're going to cut financial aid, 
that you want the message out there. You really don't want to see more refugee, Ukrainian refugees enter this country. I think that's entirely the purpose of it, because for any other reason, it doesn't work. Uh, even for that, it doesn't work. I mean, I think what we have is um, the policies being mooted just don't address the problem. Uh, you know, 90 days, then your own accommodation. You know, we have that's homelessness. Yeah. Uh, there's 6,000 people in direct provision that can't move out because we don't have a private rental sector that is affordable that people can do. And it's important to recognise that 50% of Ukrainians here who are of working age are working and 50% of those are doing two jobs, right? So it's affordability and availability is a problem. And secondly, and the same with reducing social welfare. I mean, I think what we're doing is we're diverting from the problem and the problem is a lack of accommodation supply. And either we have to either plan for that or we also, and we may need to also speak to our European partners about a European level solution. Would you suggest, um, Emma, that on this, if there was the private accommodation to move into, that it would not be an issue for refugees, that Absolutely. they would be happy um, to, to pursue that? I mean, given Absolutely. the cost of private rented accommodation and the waiting list, the, the, the availability of it out there, but that they would be in a position to do that were it to be available to them. Absolutely, I think that is our problem. You know, I mean, it's not just in the refugee side, but you know, the limitation of housing and the private rental and alternatives is the, it's the elephant in the room and this policy does not address that. Yeah, on a practical note, Barry, isn't that the case that even if, you know, and it is seen to be acting as a deterrent, if you, if you go with this 90 days uh, limiting state accommodation um, to Ukrainian refugees that the government would suggest is probably in keeping with what the rest of Europe is offering, um, yeah, well, on a practical note, there's nowhere for people to go. Yeah, look, the, the bottom line is it would appear, and Taoiseach wording is might be opportune, compassion and capacity are about to collide if it hasn't collided already. And the whole issue is in relation to the availability and the suitability of accommodation and the pressure that's on the existing accommodations, whether it's hotels or repurposed commercial buildings or older buildings, whether it's modular homes. Are you saying what we're offering right now is not compassionate? No, what I'm saying is there's a willingness on the part of this government and the people of the country to assist and help in so far as they can. And they have pulled out all the stops to accommodate up to 97,000 people to date. But the numbers keep coming. You know, we need, we need, the Minister hasn't brought forward any specific proposal. It was a discussion that took place at Cabinet uh, without the Minister, for, it, the minister for Children, is, is it not a for Integration, and for a discussion with intent. To bring forward. Of course it's a discussion. Of course they're yeah. entitled to have a discussion, but they're not entitled to make a decision without a proposal. I mean, but this conversation has been had. I mean, no, Emma, you'd suggested you'd, you'd heard and there's about some data there's, that, there's word of it. There's data too that needs to be brought into the equation, needs to be assimilated, needs to be considered, and needs to be presented as part of that solution. Like, I mean, it, we're told that one third of those entering the country from supposedly from the Ukraine now are come from other European countries. Is it because there isn't an offering of a similar nature there? Is it that we are taking more than what we are able for or in comparison to others? And what has been said in relation to a European solution, maybe it's time for to go back to Europe and go back and look at this, look at the difficulties that, like the Irish are having, and find a solution that is compatible with everybody else and is unified okay, amongst well, everybody it, else. It would appear a change of tune from government, um, Duncan, but on this, and in particular, uh, that data that Barry referred to on 30% of... Uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees coming here uh, have come from another EU country before landing in here. Um, I mean, how would you assess that? Um, well, I need to look at the data as well. How many Ukrainian refugees have gone from this country to other countries as well, to, in other directions, oh, to be with yes. family? I mean, there's an awful lot of movement going on. It's it, the, the problem is how we got to this this space and how does it get to a cabinet meeting where it's brought up, where something like this is added in as an AOB, not a headed item? 
totally abnormal practice. I mean, what we're hearing around Leinster House is that uh, Minister O'Gorman has been banging on the door to be able to bring this up and discuss this, but it's been blocked by the senior ministers around Cabinet. There's been no agreements. Yeah, yeah there's no that's, agreements. He can't bring a proposal until such time as he's worked with other departments, with other ministers, in order to have a unified approach and a solution but, but, then to bring to Cabinet yeah, for it to be agreed. Sorry, like, sorry, and until he does that, you know, he can't expect a solution under any other business. He's not getting engagement from other ministers, particularly from the Minister for Housing, who has overall responsibility for the provision of housing in the state. He hasn't uh, engaged. We've asked for that from the start. We've asked at one point for a dedicated minister for, for uh, the Ukrainian refugee issue. That was rebuffed. We've asked for regular updates and debates in the Dáil on, on a monthly basis. We haven't had that either. And then we find ourselves with, uh, we can't even call it a proposal because we haven't seen the details mm -hmm. of it, with this uh, uh, AOB, a uh, really worrisome, uh, a set of, of, of proposals being thrashed out at the end of a cabinet meeting on what is a very, very serious issue. So, I mean, I, I think the minister, uh, with the longest, uh, uh, with most responsibilities in terms of ministerialships, that is Roderick O'Gorman, I think it sounds like he's reached the end of his tether and isn't getting the support from his cabinet colleagues on this and hasn't for many, many months. There should have been greater engagement right. across the cabinet table. I mean, the question is, the current... current uh, figures that we're hearing about are arriving into Ireland every week is 800 refugees from Ukraine. Uh, that's the current situation, isn't it? Emma? I think that might have been last week. It's been much less. So about 600, 650 okay. has been the average. So, so a bit of fluctuation it around does that. Fluctuate. But, but nonetheless, yeah. um, I mean, do we have to come to terms with the reality that, you know, th this line, the state may have co compassion, but now capacity does come into it and we're in danger of creating another direct provision? Well, I think we have direct provision Absolutely. at an industrial yeah. level now, right? Okay, so that is where we are is so much worse than we and, were. Two and years in terms ago. of making progress at, you know, eradicating direct provision, we are we, so we have far so from much that work now. to do. But but it it also comes down. It's not even just. It, it's a failure to develop capacity, right? Eighteen months ago, the Irish Refugee Council gave a paper to the Taoiseach, which was Michal Martin at the time, laying out the alternative accommodation that needed to be looked at and different models of it. Nothing was done with that because that poor Department of Children has been in crisis ever since. And this is a call for help. And it's another call for help because they are really reaching the end because people are coming in and no one is able to exit the system because we don't have anywhere to put them. So, Even if they could pay for it themselves, yes, there's nowhere for them to go. Briefly, Emma, what do you make of these proposals um, around, I suppose, the money and the benefits that are offered here and this, you know, suggestion that, you know, we are uh, an outlier in Europe, I mm -hmm. mean, we, uh, we, you know, in terms of the benefits that we offer to people. Yeah, so I think... So, social welfare benefit compared to, say, €100 Euro per week in Spain. Yeah. Um, um, you know, you, you've much lower, I think it's uh, 69 euro in Poland per week. And yeah, so, so I think we're comparing apples and pears a little bit, mm. but certainly Cost in Ireland, Irish. you know, what we are, what we're, people are getting is job seekers and they're getting the same level as other Irish people, right? So work it's, in the economy. Uh, yeah, exactly. That, and we are a much more expensive country and we, all of those things, right? So, so it is supposed to be at a cost of living. So if we think that the cost of living should change, but then that's fine and the department should look at it. But let's not think, this is, arrivals have been driven by war and not by welfare tourism. And I just really, really object to some of the language and descriptions that we use today because it's almost, it's very cynical and it's almost making it uh, palatable so to make Michael a So when Michael Martin said it's possible that Ukrainians are coming from other EU states because the supports are more generous here. Yeah. What do you make of that? I think it's, well, I think it's unfair. And I think it, it's, it's a diversion from the core. Yeah. 
Because there's no empirical evidence to support that. Yeah, just to be ascertained whether that is a fact But it it is, I mean, it is is a reality, I think, that Ireland's offering, such as it is, I mean, offering's probably the wrong word, but Mm. what Ireland can offer, stop saying it, to (laughs) refugees is... uh, different from other European countries and is, is probably more generous. But then there's a higher cost of living in this mm. country. So but, but it's generous that's, that's on the income, of, you might say, but yeah. then people have nowhere to live. So Well, well that's, that, that is an issue for sure. But look, as you said at the start, Emmett, like the, the, the issue or what they're trying to achieve here is that people would know that there's a 90-day limit on accommodation. And they think that, the, I think they think that it would have an effect in terms of the numbers coming here. Mm-hmm. Because there has been an increase in, in the last month, I think it's, it's gone up by about 25% or so. So um, in, the, in the numbers of weekly arrivals, I mean, so that is having an impact, I think. And that is why I think Roderick O'Gorman has tried to force the issue by putting it uh, at the end of a cabinet meeting uh, with the agreement of the Taoiseach. Uh, knowing perhaps full well that it, it would probably get out. Well, look, if cabinet, it serves, you know, the, if the it confidentiality serves, of cabinet meetings. If is it not serves the purpose of ensuring that the relevant ministers and departments who have responsibility to work together to prepare a solution presented by the Minister for mm-hmm. Children and Youth and Integration, Roderick McGorman, so be it. Let that happen, and only then can the cabinet make a decision. Can the cabinet provide the funding okay. that's necessary to, mm-hmm. to meet the demands contained right. within that proposal? Okay, we're out of time on this. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Barry, to Duncan, to Hugh and to Emma. Coming up next, the climate crisis and are we at irreversible tipping points? Stay with us. UN researchers have warned that humanity is moving dangerously close to irreversible climate risk tipping points that would drastically damage our ability to cope with disasters. I'm joined now by Chris Caldwell, CEO of United Renewables, and Jennifer Salmon, a climate youth delegate. And they're both attending a major climate conference at TCD in Dublin tomorrow. I mean, good timing for all of this. Uh, You would say that the the time is very much now. It was yesterday, actually, to have a conference like this and decades ago, um, Jennifer. I mean, from your point of view, is there a severe climate anxiety out there now? Like, you're a young person attending um, this particular conference. Is there a real feeling feeling of, of doom, I would say? at this point? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's something that I wouldn't have necessarily experienced until SB 58 this year in June, where for the first time I kind of saw, as part of the national delegation, you kind of see behind the scenes a little bit more and kind of seeing international law being discussed. It's kind of frustrating because you feel like everything's going so slowly and yet it's such an urgent and pressing issue. So I think certainly I kind of lost faith a little bit after SB 58 and was thinking like, you know, I'm just so hopeless. Like, where are we going with this? But I think, you know, the the climate summit that's happening tomorrow is a really kind of positive thing. And it's a really good time for, you know, young people, businesses, corporates, industry leaders and policymakers all to be discussing how are we actually going to try and achieve net zero by 2030? So I think it's promising that there's events like this still happening and, of course, COP coming up too. So, you know, we just have to keep trying and (laughs) stay I guess the question is, is there a sense, Chris, that it is achievable, this net zero goal? It appears uh, very elusive, at least from where we are now. Yeah, uh, well, there's a much-quoted McKinsey study uh, which uh, says we've got 78% of all the technologies that we need to be able to achieve net zero. That's great. If you can do roughly 80% of the... with existing technologies to get, get us there, all that we need to do uh, to implement it is to have the will 
Now, it's the wheel that we're, we're slightly lacking, but the planet is nudging us towards understanding that we can't keep on doing what we've been doing. Uh, this summer, we've seen floods, we've seen drama, uh, we've mm. seen droughts, we've seen all, we've seen incredible scenes in um, yeah, New York with, far, with uh, the forest fires, fires from Canada, looks like Mad Max, and then a month later, it's been, been flooded. Uh, the world is really, you know, in China as well, Asia, mm. like all of these, these major, major, major emergencies, which means that we are finding it more difficult to ignore. Now, together with the warnings we've been getting, there's also a great opportunity because we need to be spending something like $4 trillion a year uh, to, to be transforming the, the economy between now and 2040. We're currently spending about 850. There's a big gap, about 850 million. Uh, there's a there, there billion. There's a big gap between where we are and where we need to be. But within that gap, there is the opportunity, there's enormous opportunity for uh, for us to be... to be, Yeah, you know. because just to, just to, to, to clarify, yeah. um, you are, you know, uh, CEO of a renewable company, so your mm -hmm. focus is very much on that and what can be achieved in terms of reducing our carbon footprint through that. Yeah. Like the question is, how is Ireland faring when it comes to renewables? There's a lot of pressure on it, actually, primarily because from a consumer point of view, we do want cheaper electricity bills. We want to bring our bills down, our energy bills down. Yeah. And renewables are being offered as a way of us being able to do that. But they're not coming on stream quickly enough. That, that's what the critics yeah. say. That is true. They're not coming on quickly enough. And the main problem, as with a lot of issues in Ireland um, for, for building stuff quickly, is the planning legislation. Um, we've got a wonderful natural resource here. Uh, we've got great wind. We've got very decent solar. We've got, got great, uh, great you know, water. Um, we can be energy um, energy independent, and if we're energy in independent, then you don't you don't need to be going to the wholesale markets and buying in oils and gases. You, know, you can be you can be be running your own your own ship and bring down costs of energy quite dramatically. Yeah, it's how quickly uh, that that can happen, and how quickly progress can be made in that area. Uh, Jennifer, from your point of view, you know, what way would you like to see companies more accountable? Do you think that there is the will there um, that Chris mentioned? for change and, and for that jump that clearly, like people like you say, we need to make in this area. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is the will. And as a final year student, every kind of company who's looking to hire you now is all, you know, explaining all their ESG goals and sustainability that they're doing. And it sort of feels sometimes like it's a marketing thing that they just want to tell you about all these different things they have going on. And, and do you think of, it's genuine or is it a marketing thing? We hear about greenwashing all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because a lot of it is greenwashing. But I think Tomorrow's Summit is a really great example of kind of people holding each other accountable and businesses coming together to say, well, what are we doing that's working really well? How can we implement it in other places? And I think it's promising that, you know, with accountability, things like the Climate Summit tomorrow, there is hope that it's not all just marketing really with ESG. Yeah, and like, look, people will say this is a climate summit being held in Dublin, uh, but like, you know, we are a small country. Yes, the big ideas will be presented at that particular summit, but look at the big, you know, carbon users. Look what's happening in the big countries. Look what China's doing. Look at the coal mines. Look at, and, and what difference can we actually make in all of this? Or is it just, you know, a talking shop, Chris? Mm. Well, we can, but when we all can make a, make a big difference. Like we as like European Union citizens, um, we are doing a really good job of telling our politicians and telling our leaders that we really care about this stuff and the, the political leaders are listening. The climate legislation that's going through in Europe is world leading and but the reason that that is happening is because you've got more than 70% of the population who believe in climate change and are, and are concerned about it. So there was a survey just just this morning that was released in The Guardian that just, just, just said that very, with that very point. Yeah I, I suppose like we're moving into now the next COP, is it COP28? Um, and we will hear more, you know, evidence and fears about our future. 
And the question is around that, like, is there hope that more achievement can be made than, I suppose, what was arguably made at COP26 and, and other climate summits to date? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really looking great at the moment for COP28 as to what will come out of it. But I mean, if we go into things like this hopeless, then nothing will actually change. And I think it's really important for people to remember the value that their voice has. And as Chris was saying, you know, like if we get legislation in that's progressive enough, there is hope that things can change. So I think it's important to remember the value of your voice in terms of, you know, when your TDs are coming to you and saying what's important to you. If you say climate, that's the things that they're going to focus on then, of course. So I think with collective action, there's... There is is that hope. a priority with your generation? Yeah, I absolutely think it is because, you know, it's it's our generation who are going to be the ones who are experiencing climate effects. You know, at the moment, I, the IPCC is saying that, you know, we need to reduce emissions by 51% by 2030 to, you know, be able to be okay. And, you know, we're, we're not on track to reduce by 51% at all. So I think it is something that everyone our age should really care about. All right. Okay. All of us indeed. There we will leave it. Uh, my thanks to Jennifer, to Chris, to all our panellists tonight. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can find us on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, but from all the late team here, good night and take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.